Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Quarantine Break Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're keeping well and safe out there. My guest today is the wonderful playwright and screenwriter, James Graham. He's the man behind so many great TV shows and plays, including Brexit, The Uncivil War, Coalition, This House, and most recently, Quiz, based on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire coughing scandal and officially the most watched TV drama of the year. I spoke to James just hours after he appeared on Question Time, where he talked passionately about how the arts have been dealing with lockdown. We talk about that, quiz, and loads, loads more. Take a listen, and I'll see you at the end. Hello, James. How have you been keeping? Hi. Um, oh, fine. Like everyone else, it's um, a discombobulating roller coaster. Sometimes, like sometimes, sometimes absolutely okay. Sometimes absolutely fine. Um, moments of strange happiness and then sometimes impossible lows but you know that's that I'm accepting I'm accepting of that how about you I'm I'm good I'm not too bad I'm not too bad I think like you I have good days and bad days some days some days are really good I'm thinking it, you know, I'm never I'm never going to go back to an office again I just I just <laughs> live in my house now I can go and work outside very often though it's just me sat at my dinner table trying to do some work and just thinking about getting back to some version of normality yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. I have to start with the fact that we're recording this on Friday and it's the day after you were on Question Time. As a panellist, I should point out, you weren't sitting in the audience yelling. How did how did you find that? It was, um, I, 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 these are obvious things to say, but I actually, I did actually find it quietly terrifying. Mm. You, um, you, you spend the days leading up to it really overthinking your arguments. You just, you start to write points down that, that will sound too rehearsed. And then you walk into the studio and it's a, it's a bizarre artificial studio at the moment anyway. Mm. So you can't touch anybody. You can't shake hands and you have to be really separate from the rest of the crew and the, and the people. So you feel like strangely in a, in a, in a lonely wilderness. And then the studio lights go, you hear the, the, the famous theme tune and every thought you've ever had <laughs> leaves your head and you go, I don't have an opinion about literally anything. Uh, and you just, you, yeah, it, it was, it was mildly terrifying, but I was, um, I was pleased, reasonably pleased with how it went. We got, we managed to 
to fight for about 10 minutes of airtime to, um, to talk about theatre and the unique threat that this poses to culture and film production and arts and, and live performance, which is going to be an ongoing, slightly exhausting uh, case to make to the government, but it's a start. I will come on to some of the stuff you chatted about last night, because I think how lockdown has affected culture and the arts is a really, really important conversation to have. But James, this is a tea break, so we need to get the question that has everyone on tenterhooks. And Will Arnett retweeted this podcast yesterday. Hi, Will. So somewhere Lego Batman is awaiting your answer, James. And I feel like Chris Tarrant, with all this build-up, how do you take your tea? So... Very boring, but, but very classic. I would say traditional. I take my tea. Uh, I have. I used to have sugar. I now have no sugar. I have a splash of milk. Since the turn of the year, I made a commitment to try and and, and eat and drink less cow. Uh, and and so I'm, I'm I'm experimenting with oat milk. I'm experimenting with um, coconut milk. So that that's been difficult. I'm going to be mm. honest, but I, um, it's quite hard to put new milk in your tea. And, and, and learn to enjoy that taste. But I'm, I'm pushing through, trying different combinations, trying different ratios, and I'm getting there. I mean, we can all relax now. That that's that's the hardest bit of the podcast. I mean, I've had you, some. Did I, how did I how did I do? Was that was it, it, it was is coconut milk in tea? Do you want to just stop talking to me now? I think coconut milk is is right. Oat milk, I'm not so sure because that starts to taste a little bit porridgey. I I feel you're not wrong. Um, and I went through an almond phase, mm. but then of course I started googling almonds and they're in and of themselves they're incredibly problematic in terms of the energy cost it takes takes to grow those so you try you try and do good and then you end up doing worse and you know it's really hard to be good in the modern world so i'm just saying i'm on a journey i'm on a journey and i'm gonna get there yeah every time i think i've done something right and i'm saving the planet it turns out i've done <laughs> the complete opposite yeah 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 so this podcast is about taking a tea break from the world a world where upon hearing small concessions might be made to lifting lockdown people literally and immediately started a conga line and my god they look smug they did and i, I was very i i i, I looked smug by not being there <laughs> i felt incredibly smug to not have to do that i don't think i've been as mad about a conga line since probably the last time somebody tried to make me join a conga line to be honest i kept thinking i i found in my nervousness in appearing on question time uh, and how i might mis misjudge a certain moment, say, I, I, I thought of the conga line and I thought, well, no matter what, I'll never misjudge anything as badly as they misjudge that. So I took peace in that. It's just, I think it's just the look on their faces as, as, as they're doing it. Like they, 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 they realise exactly what the gravity of the situation is, but they don't care. I just, I don't think in, in, in peacetime, you don't look good doing a conga. Yeah. But I think in, I think in, in, in quarantine, I mean, bless them, they tried, they had the, they had the rope, didn't they, and the two little knots um but yes look we'll, we'll forgive and forget maybe unless unless they killed tens of thousands of people by doing it in which case screw them. <laughs> james how has lockdown been for you i imagine exactly the same as, as everybody else I, I, those those first couple of weeks were were horrible mm. um it was you know the speed in which it happened um, one morning life is just as, as it normally was with this looming fear on the horizon and, and then the next day everything had changed it just felt so um so immediate and so stark and i guess particularly because of because of the, the what is joyful about my job and my industry yeah yeah is it, it's, it's so it's so wonderfully um collective it's a community you make theater and you're surrounded by 
hundreds of people in an auditorium and it and this you know the conversations you have the beer you have in the interval and the drink you have afterwards it's a, it's an act of glorious physical proximity yeah, yeah. and um and and even the making of it the making of television dramas and plays and musicals and films is a wonderfully communal endeavor so um so yeah so for that to stop immediately and stop so brutally the lights to go off across the country was um emotionally spiritually politically culturally just very 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 hard and i couldn't really believe how unproductive i was the one benefit i thought was i woke up on day one as my diary like yours and everybody's diary completely emptied and with nothing to do in the evening i thought my god i'm going to be productive this is going to be great yeah. i'm going to write that that novel I've been talking about for 10 years. Um, that just didn't happen. I just, I, I was so surprised at how hard, given I spend most of my life on my own, I live alone and I, I spend a lot of time writing on my own. I couldn't believe how, how that, even that normal standard of, of basic writing rhythm completely was completely destroyed. I was sleeping at weird times. Yeah. I was eating at weird times. I was staring at my computer, not doing anything. I was on my phone all the time, trying to connect with the world and feel connected. And so, yes, about the fortnight in, I just had to let go of the shame and the embarrassment around that, I think, and just accept that there is no normal way. Yeah to lock up 60 million people and it go okay and it's just going to be strange i feel there's almost a backlash now about that kind of sentiment that you have to use this time to be incredibly productive in fact i think i read on the bbc that it's been labeled toxic productivity oh i've not heard that that's brilliant yeah well i mean and we all know it intuitively and of course we have to be kind to ourselves but yes there was a there was a, a, a theatre meme that went across social media about, um, well, you know, in in, Shakespeare, in the plague in Elizabethan times, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, fine, well, good for him. I'm really pleased. <laughs> and actually, that's probably not true. Um, but yes, no King Lears have come out of me at the moment. I'm <laughs> I'd actually say that, strangely, I have been enjoying a little bit of extra time at home. Not to the extent that we've all had to stay at home, but I have been enjoying a little bit of extra time at home. Has there been anything during lockdown that you actually think, this has been nice, this has been better even? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time on tubes and buses, and I think um, one of the, which, you know, can can it can be all right, but I don't, I don't, in the same way that I don't do lockdown very well, I don't do tubes very well or buses very well. I, I don't read that book um, uh, and, and enjoy that time. I don't sit there thinking um, helpful thoughts or meditating on life. I'll probably just be on my phone. Yeah. So, um, so actually, and what, one of the benefits, I hope, as much as I can't wait to be back in a script meeting with a producer tearing my work to shreds, <laughs> that would be that would be a joyful day when that happens. Um, I think probably like you and, and anyone in any sector, the realisation that you don't always have to travel in and have that meeting and then travel home. You can actually do it on FaceTime or Zoom um, will be will be really helpful. Most meetings, most things you have to talk about in a meeting, you can probably get done in 20 to 30 minutes. But you need, you need the first 10 minute preamble. How are you? What did you do at the weekend? And you need the 10 minutes preamble afterwards. And then getting to and from these places takes 45 minutes an hour for me. So that would be great if we can hold on to that. As much as I say, as much as I want to be in a room with <laughs> yeah, people yeah. again, let's just be really strategic about when that's important. Yeah. 
I mean, so much has moved the digital sphere since the world was shut down. Have you been doing any of those digital experiences, like learning to make cocktails on Instagram, Saturday night Zoom pub quizzes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, and um, yeah, I mean, I love a quiz. I, I wrote, uh, hence why I wrote the television drama as a, <laughs> as a celebration of game shows and quizzes. That was, that was a love letter to what... I absolutely adored growing up, mm. and most of my teenage years, when you and anyone with a with a social life were probably in parks drinking cider with your mates, I was I was with my grandparents watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> so Saturday night Zoom quizzes for me are just basically what the nineties were. Um, no, I, that, 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 to be honest, that stuff that stuff has been a huge positive. It shouldn't have taken a global pandemic for me and the five guys who were best friends at school to get back in touch with one another and see each other on the same screen and meet meet their kids over yes over a zoom uh, but to say hi so that's been really wonderful and yes we do have a where i have a great friend uh, who is the quiz master on our on, on our friendship groups quiz and he goes all out he every week there's a different theme he has a theme tune he has a jacket he has an amazing zoom background thinks of very inventive rounds there's always a picture round he has a great round which is where am i now where he changes his Zoom backdrop to an obscure city in Europe and we have to guess where he is. Oh, I think last week we did... Um, do you remember Finders Keepers? It was like a CITV oh, game that show. Oh, was an incredible show. Neil Buchanan, I think, presented Neil Buchanan, yeah. exactly, the architect guy. And he, you know, you basically go into a different rooms of a house on, on a set and tear it apart to try and find a specific item. So last week we did a found, Finders Keepers round where he, get, he gave us a list of items and a minute... Uh, and we had to just run around our house finding things and and and, and bringing them back to the screen. And whoever was quickest was first. That was the most exercise I think I've ever had. Um, we did a, a drag race one one week. We don't get warning of this, by the way. That's why it's terrifying. He tells us that it's a drag race round and we have four minutes to drag up. Uh, and, and away we go. So, yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. I really hope there's a controversy linked to Finders Keepers now because I would love you basically to bring Finders Keepers back. That would be amazing. If, if, if that's the outcome of lockdown, that would totally be worth it, yeah. <laughs> we'll be talking about quiz very shortly, but why do you think so many people have been turning to quizzes in, in particular during lockdown? It seems like there's so many of them. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, and my answer is probably too general and crude to be remotely true, but I think there is something... I don't. I, I, fundamentally, I don't think it's a coincidence that pop quizzes were birthed in the UK mm. as a phenomenon. They started around the 1970s, and but they really proliferated in the 1990s as, as quiet pubs needed to work out what to do on a quiet Tuesday or Thursday. And they've gone around the world. And, you know, I, I have friends in America now where tri they call them trivia nights. Yeah. But bars and pubs doing them uh, doing them um, to great frequency. So, But I think what it is about the British is, tell me if this is stupid, <laughs> We are we are a sociable breed by by default, I think. But we are also there are things that we find difficult, and this is a national stereotype, I know. But there is an element of uh, social awkwardness and and privacy, and slight emotional repression that means we desperately want to interact with people, our friends and our neighbours. But we need a bit of a safety net and a security blanket to do that. So I think there's something about a quiz which is a, which allows you to be to, to share something collectively with people but there is a structured event around it that means you never stray into accidental intimacies yeah. or vulnerabilities you're not going to actually 
talk about the fact that you're a bit sad at the moment or that you're worried about your dog because you've got to answer a question about how long was Queen Victoria on the phone on the phone for. <laughs> and um, so I think it just I just think it just helps us. It helps us to do what we want to do, which is be together and interact but protects us at the same time. I genuinely think it's exactly that. I had the same conversation with someone over Zoom, obviously, and I think it is that. We want to be with people, but we, we need an activity. We need something else. We can't just admit that necessarily that we need to talk to people. We need to do a quiz or we need to need to talk to them that way we need to debate on what the answer is yeah yeah and actually the, the, i don't know if you agree but the one the only the only downside to the proliferation of, of zoom quizzes is as glorious as it is it, it does lack what i think is the most important and brilliant aspect of, of, a, of a pub quiz which is which is the whispering and the conferring yeah. And because because I live alone, I don't have anyone to whisper to, so I have to whisper to myself, and, and that takes away what I think is the is the most wonderful part of it. It's how you go, and this is I know we're going to talk about it later, but this is this was what I thought the genius of who wants to be a millionaire, millionaire format was. Yeah. It wasn't the million pound prize fund, and it wasn't the dramatic lights or the thumping music. It was the first time in British television where there was a multiple choice yes. question, yeah, yeah. and that there was no there was no clock. So normally you're watching Mastermind, and if you're lucky, you might get a chance to think what the answer is and, and, and get it before the contestant does, but probably not. And ditto University Challenge. Whereas Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was an, was an interactive show for the people at home. You've got time to argue with your dad and your mom or your wife or your husband. And 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 what, what, what a brilliant question demands of you. I used to think a brilliant question was, oh, you either know it or you don't. That's the worst question. Yeah. That's terrible. The best question is that it allows you to go on a journey to get to possibly the right answer by trying to remember all of your lived experiences. So what is the capital city of blah, 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 blah. And you turn to the person you love and you go, didn't your mum go there? No, she went to there. Oh, God, God no, but I thought on Facebook, she said, and you, you go on a journey. And it means you can summon, you can just summon memories, good memories and bad memories. And that's, that's what a great pub quiz is, and that's just just not quite the element of a Zoom quiz because because you don't get to talk to anybody. Although I will say the best Zoom quizzes I've done, I think, have been, all been multiple choice precisely for that reason okay. because there's there's a bit of debate about it, or you can just put in something quite ridiculous as one of the as the options and have a laugh about that. Yes, exactly. So here's another thing. I promise we won't get too geeky, but I loved finding out that because Millionaire was the first multiple choice. Um, uh, uh, game show. You, of course, you have all these. Uh, the, you have all, the, all these great question setters, and I think question setters, as a breed of people, deserve their own spin-off <laughs> series because they're so fascinating. A lot of them in these in the days of classic game shows sort of lived and worked together in, in a house in Liverpool. It's really fascinating, and they would send these questions on on a floppy disk encrypted down to the studio. Um, it's standard practice that, of course, if you are if you are saying that this answer this is the right answer, you need a couple of sources to back that up. What they hadn't factored in when they were doing multiple choice questions on who wants to be a millionaire is that you then also need to get sources that confirm that this is the wrong answer, <laughs> and that's actually really hard. <laughs> it's really easy to find two sources that say Queen that Elizabeth II is the, currently the Queen of England. It's actually quite hard to find. At written proof mm. that Victoria Beckham is not the Queen of England. <laughs> she has to go and find that. And I think, I don't know what that says, but I think it says something about the nature of truth and lies. It's really easy to prove something is real. It's really hard to prove something isn't. And with something that, that's big to our post-truth crisis at the moment, I, I think there's something in that, weirdly. That's honestly amazing. I'd never thought of that at all. 
like I'd always assumed that question answers had been double sourced. I mean, that's very that's very BBC, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But to have to prove that something isn't false. Wow. What an incredible detail. Yeah. It is, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. While we're uh, chatting about digital things, your wonderful play, This House, is on National Theatre live on May 28th. Have you seen much digital theatre? I have a bit. I mean, again, I, 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 have, I think we should all, nobody should be shamed into, uh, into watching everything and feeling guilty if they don't want to or can't. And there has been a glorious proliferation of, of digital culture and creativity a lot of it is completely grassroots mm. outside of our major institutions it's just people at home recording a monologue on their phone and that's glorious but i've um i started to get quite sweaty in those early weeks uh, at how many things were coming out and i i found peace that you don't have to watch everything but i've tried to yes i've been watching the national theater at home plays which are just so wonderful and um anytime uh, uh oh actually one of those one of the things i have done is there's um I, I I didn't really in in the in the old world go and see much classical music or chamber music or anything like that just wasn't really my thing, but um, the Lincoln Center in New York mm. are doing I think they, they they call it like lunchtime recitals where they where they play old old clips of, of symphonies and things or, or, or chamber music, um, and because that comes out around cooking time here in the uk i've, I've tried to be tried to be engaging a bit with that it's just quite a nice thing to have on in the background yeah, and yeah. It makes me feel very uh the idea that i'm i'm at the met i'm at the metropolitan <laughs> opera in new york or something uh whilst i'm in the jogging bottoms at home trying to cook an egg feels, feels really lovely uh for people who are about to tune into this house can you tell us a little bit about it yeah, so it's a play uh, that we um, staged, I think it's nearly eight years ago now, originally in 2012, and it was my first play commissioned for the National Theatre on the South Bank. And it takes place in the building opposite it, on the North Bank, the Houses of Parliament. And I, I, I started writing it, it was just after the 2010 general election when we had uh, what felt like at the time a huge novelty, something <laughs> called a home parliament. And uh, I hadn't had one of those in my lifetime. And most people hadn't. Uh, well, that's not true. But uh, so, I, but I instead of instead of in order to make sense of what challenges and stresses and strains a more collegiate or collaborative form of government does in our in our system, which normally demands strong majority government, I thought about going back in time just to see the last time that happened, and that was the 1970s. And gloriously for me, I'm sure this is embarrassing to admit, I'm sure the people who were alive at the time will remember this, but I just couldn't believe how extraordinary that period of time yeah. in Parliament was. For those who remember it, it was the age of, because, because, because there was no uh, majority for the Labour government, Ka uh, Wilson and Callaghan, it meant that every every vote was being won or lost by one or two. So, so it pushed the system to absolute strain. And and as normally happens in in our glorious, um, particularly English institutions, the end point of that is often farce. So you have these bizarre, blackly comic moments where because they needed every single, every party needed every MP mm. to come in and vote if they could. And because of our gloriously archaic system that means you vote with your actual body, you have to move your body physically down the lobby and walk past a teller to count you. Um, 
it meant that they had to get everybody in, and that sometimes meant in quite an old parliament where lots of members were elderly or sick or in some cases dying, there were sites of ambulances turning up into New Palace Yard and people being carried or helped or lifted across the line if they could be. And if they couldn't be, they would stay in the ambulance and two whips from opposing parties would have to go and see quite if that member of parliament was alive enough wow. to be considered to have attended the vote. And, and voted in a particular way. So it's, yeah, it was incredibly, um, quite farcical. But uh, but yes, essentially that's it. It's a, it's a play that looks at our democratic system, which is very old, very medieval, very has lots of strange rituals and procedures to it. Uh, and it is mainly set in, in the whips office, the whips of the Labour, Labour whips and, and then the Conservative whips. I mean, with this House, coalition, the vote, and of course, Brexit, the uncivil war, Dominic Cummings, whatever happened to him, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> You've charted some of the biggest moments in recent British politics. I mean, there, I wish there weren't so many for you to chart, if I'm honest, but here we are. Are you somebody who looks at the last three or six months, if you're looking at the science, and thinks, I need to write about this? No, not at all, really. I that may come one day, but I one I don't assume I don't assume the right to I don't assume a monopoly that mm. it's uh, on anything real life that's interesting that I that it's my place to tell that story. I think there were loads of better and talented voices that will be able to maybe tackle this specific crisis than than I would. I also just don't know what this story is. Yeah, yet. I think strangely enough, immediately after the referendum happened. I thought, I think I know what this, I think I know what this is. Um, and then set about writing it quite quite soon. Hence all of those think pieces that came out around Brexit, discussing whether or not it was too soon to have that 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 film out with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, yeah, I just don't really know what this is or what, what the angle on this yeah. is. is. Is the story the government and their response to it? Is it the science? Is it the, is it the human experience of locking up the entire population and what that felt like? Um, is it the NHS? Is it is it something less literal than that? More abstract, more absurd? Because this is this is a, a very huge and weird and very long Beckett play that we're all living yeah. in. Um, I don't know, but I, I think you have to be honest with yourself that if you don't feel it, if you don't instinctively feel it, that you probably shouldn't force it. I had Rufus Jones on the podcast, and he said exactly the same thing. So he was working on, I think, series three of his immigration comedy, Home, and he put that on hold because. Exactly that. He didn't know what the story was. He didn't know who are the heroes, who are the villains, yeah. and what, what and how the narrative will change. I suppose in terms of dramas and comedies coming back, um, and this is Rufus uh, that I'm stealing this from, but it's almost a bit like 9-11. Such a massive event has happened to such an amount of people. And how does culture respond to that? How do you approach it as a TV series, as a comedy, as a drama, and particularly for returning shows or long-running shows like Soaps? It's really interesting, isn't it? And look, an answer will just emerge, and it probably won't be uniform across across dramas and stage and screen. But you're right. I mean, the first thing to say, the first, there's two problems, isn't there? There's how do you literally make stuff anyway? And that's that's in and of itself a dilemma. The second thing is how does your how do your dramas, your characters absorb what we all just lived through? Because presumably those fictional characters have just lived through yeah. it. So I don't know. On, Cor on Coronation Street, is the next episode just going to be Ken Barlow leaving the house and going, "Oh, that was yeah, awful, yeah. wasn't it?" But I'm glad we've finished lockdown. Um, uh, what does it feel like? Did did your characters lose somebody to to, to the coronavirus? So even though I'm so I'm writing television dramas 
that were commissioned in the old world that hopefully will be made eventually in the new world. But I have to now think, even though maybe people won't mention it specifically, yeah. they lived through it. That town, that community, that family must have been in lockdown. Did that and how that changed them and what how their circumstances have changed, how that's changed them psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. So I don't I just think you know, basically, also actors are bullying. The actors will just do that anyway. The actors will absorb what it now feels like to be a 21-year-old kid who who didn't get to celebrate their A-levels or their degree or something. I don't know. I think it'll be there, but there'll be no uniform response. We briefly touched on creativity during lockdown, and it has been a struggle for a lot of people. But how, how have you found being creative in, in this time? Very difficult. And the... Uh, the Previously, I, 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 one of my one of the things I learned about myself and my own process was that unless I got up early and started early, I would never yeah. start. I would love to be that romantic playwright who who does nothing all day, maybe drinks all day, and then about eleven o'clock at night, you light a candle and turn on the music and start typing. But that just isn't me. Um, so I try. I always try to get up early and, and start and hit the ground running. So that was the weirdest thing because I found it really hard to get up early and I found it really hard yeah. to sleep and and. And you just start moping around, and and so I've tried to find structures. Mm-hmm. I tried to find rhythms, um, and not just not and not just yes, but basically that. And it's it's it's, it's the results are mixed. Um, sometimes they're good days, and sometimes they're bad days. But I am, I, I I I'm slowly moving through my work, and actually people. That, that that's the only depressing thing, and not to repeat myself, but from the but um, not only am I not doing more work. It, with the with the extra time I've had, I'm slower on the work I had to do. So I've, I've been missing yeah. deadlines, frankly, which yeah. is weird because all I'm doing is sitting <laughs> exactly. at home. So it's weird, and it's hard to have it's hard to have that conversation with the theatre director or the television commissioner because they know I'm not yeah, going yeah. out. Um, but there is a there is a tolerance and an, and an understanding, and frankly, also most deadlines are arbitrary <laughs> and false di- false dilemmas anyway. But given the fact that we don't know when theatre is going to come back and if there will be a British film industry to speak of, it's kind of, you know to say this must be in at four o'clock on Tuesday, otherwise we can't make it. It's a kind of a false, a false dilemma because because we just don't know anymore. So so yeah, there's a tolerance. Yeah, last night you talked so so eloquently about the effects that lockdown has had on the arts. I I, I read in the FT that arts and cultural organisations have lost ninety five percent of their income. That amounts to three hundred and thirty yeah. million, I think, for theatres alone. This this is a really really tough time for the arts. It's extraordinarily tough, and obviously, it goes without saying, it's tough for for everybody. But um, but thankfully, uh, I think we're going to see, obviously, in the coming months, a lot of businesses be able to slowly return, probably on less income, huge impact on people's ability to survive. But but the other businesses are, 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 are thankfully about to be able to start, and we just can't. Yeah. And so we need to have a, 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 a quite urgent, and I imagine difficult conversation with the government that because theatres were the first, they were the first buildings to close, and they closed, they closed willingly. Yeah. They didn't wait for the government even to mandate it. If you remember that that bizarre week in March when it mm. first happened, there was no government mandate that these buildings should close on yeah, Monday. Yeah. But on Monday night, every theatre in the country took it off their own steam to do so because nothing is more important than, than human health and human life. And we did that before the restaurants, before the bars, before the gyms. 
even though it obviously devastated our finances. So I think the, I think the industry deserves huge credit for that. So it's the first buildings to close in the global pandemic, and it's the very last buildings mm. to open possibly until next year. It's now, um, weirdly, it's kind of the choice is now. It's so clear that there's kind of peace in the choice. It's not. Um, it's not a either or anymore. It's either we have these things or we yeah. don't. And if the choice, if the political choice is, I think it's probably a good thing to have a thousand theatres across the country in Nottingham and Leeds and Sheffield and Edinburgh as 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 civic buildings that play a vital role in people and communities' lives. Then, unfortunately, we unfortunately they need cash, and it's that simple. And it's it's an, it's an, as I said last night it's not a bailout it's an yeah, investment yeah. Uh, and all we need is to bridge to bridge the downtime to bridge the darkness and then and then that investment will come back tenfold as it always does once we can earn money again we chatted briefly about some of the digital content that people have been creating so we've seen plays on zoom tv shows with skeleton or no crew in some cases itv did an isolation drama yeah. can tv and film find a way to exist within this world or is that an unsustainable model it can exist a bit but we just have to be really honest yeah. that it's not as good uh, well maybe that's unfair it, it's good in a different way but um, I think I think I think storytelling on screen is glorious, and I think it matters to people. It's entertaining, but it also helps us make sense of ourselves and the world around us. And we got to a point, I'm sure you'll agree, just before the lockdown, where decades of investment and 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 the encouragement and an enrichment of talent yeah. meant that it was pretty good. Like like television starts to get really good whether that whether that was the glossy dramas on netflix or um fleabag or normal people or anything like like we were like there was no um you couldn't really in terms of production mm. values you couldn't really tell any difference between film and television anymore and and we're just very good at it in this country and we don't talk about that enough in it and, and mainly because you know the left uh, like to um, <laughs> self-deprecate uh, any kind of sense of patriotism, and, and, and understandably so. But it's but you know we should champion the things that we're good at and that matter to people. Um, so I think good drama demands um, demands those levels of those standards. Basically, you need people. You need to see two people in the same frame, and you want your character to kiss sometimes, and punch sometimes, and fight sometimes. Macbeth needs to <laughs> needs to stab what's his name, and Romeo needs to kiss Juliet. So um, we will have to find a way to get back to that. That and you know that, that will happen. And testing and tra tracing and tracking and all that stuff will help that. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any. I don't think the halfway house is 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 tolerable for for much more from from mainstream audience. Exactly that. We're almost in this strange situation at the moment. So much good TV is still pouring onto our schedules. And that's through every service, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, BBC, ITV. And that's obviously because they were all filmed pre-lockdown and all finished and edited. And obviously there are still more great TV shows to come. But we've got this false sense of security at the moment because at some point it will stop. That's so true. I think there's, there's probably a slight complacency and in, in, understandably in an audience's mind at the moment thinking, well, this is okay, actually. This is fine. But that's because we haven't started yeah. yet. The, 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 um, the autumn schedules on your linear television are going to be very, very different. And it will take, so what is it? It's been yeah. two months, two months delay to filming. Mm -hmm. That is going to, you're going to notice that. Also, 
this is probably a boring point to make, but um, because we're so good at this in the UK and because other countries come here to make their work, whether it's the Star Wars movies or, or, or television dramas, mm. HBO, Game of Thrones, whatever, um, we, were at, we were at absolute capacity in terms of yeah, producing yeah. in this country. It was actually quite hard to make a thing because you need, you, you need your director of photography, you need your cameramen, you need your crew, you need your production designers, and everyone was employed. Um, and, it's, and, and so you just sort of had to wait your turn a bit. The knock-on effect of all these delays mean that the many TV dramas and films that were meant to happen, that were meant to start in, I don't know, October, November, December, they're not going to start then because we have the things that were already in production need to be produced. And then it's going to be an absolute scramble for resources and talent. And so some things will be postponed, some things will be cancelled, some things will whatever, whatever, whatever. So it's going to be an interesting um, button fight. That's for sure. You said last night, quite rightly, it's not just about sustaining theatre. These are the places that create Phoebe Waller-Bridges. It's where Quiz was birthed. It's a, it's a platform, it's a playground, yeah. it's a school for so many people, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And it's not. It's um. You know, I'm wary. I'm wary of making theatre sound like it exists yeah. only as a training ground for then theatre and television to to take, take them <laughs> where they really belong. It's, a, it's not the case. It's actually. A, it's not a pipeline. It's a. It's a circle. It's you know, we, we, the, all three of those elements: film, TV, and theatre. Um, feed back into one another in a, in a glorious infinite cultural loop and um so you might think oh i don't go to theater so i don't really care and i don't you know i, I have yeah. some sympathy with that view but if theater has disappeared overnight um then you would notice the difference in a, in a couple of years and uh, for for what talent and opportunities and ideas are on your film uh, or on your screen james i know a lot of people will be listening to this podcast and thinking how can i support the arts what is it listeners can do well that's very nice of you to ask and very nice of you offer to offer help i mean um i i, I ultimately i hope that you, you won't have to and so the government will give us a comparatively tiny amount to sustain us but i guess if you are feeling uh, willing to, um, once we have a plan for reopening these these venues, cinemas, consoles, comedy gigs, music venues, um, booking a ticket, basically, if you can afford it, mm. would be the most glorious thing that you could do. There's no income from these venues at the moment, not just from people turning up on the night to watch the show that night. A lot of income obviously came from advance booking, the, the people buying tickets to see how yeah, to yeah. next Christmas meant that they could pay their actors that night. So advance booking would be glorious. Um, so as soon as we have a plan, yeah, if you want to come and, come and see a show uh, at any point in the year, that would be really helpful. Thank you. TV and lockdown has been so important. It has really brought us together with watch-alongs and some incredible TV shows, and it is showing why it's vital to get that industry back on its feet as soon as it's safe to do so. Quiz really did take the nation by storm, um, which, as we've said, was birthed in theatre. Yeah, it was. Um, um, thank you. I, that was that. That was uh, part of me moaning about how miserable <laughs> my lockdown was. That was actually. That was a really nice few days. It was strange because uh, I was just, just sat watching it on my own, um, and you're vaguely aware through social media and other avenues that there is a, a thing happening. There's a, a sort of a conversation yeah. happening. It just feels very different because 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 you don't you're just not there. Not it's not around you. But it was yeah. It was really wonderful. I, I, we hoped. I guess there was a conscious effort on behalf of myself and the director Stephen Frears to 
to try and create something that felt a little bit like what it was like to watch television in the time that we were depicting, which was, as you will remember, sort of sit, everyone sitting around watching the same yeah, thing at yeah. the same time as a family. And we couldn't obviously imagine the horrific circumstances that would lead to that actually being the case. And, um, you know, locking people up did help <laughs> to get us those viewing figures and, and become a bit of a water cooler thing. But it was lovely. It was lovely to see sort of anecdotally people saying it was the first time in years they got their kids together as a family and they watched the same thing on the same television rather than in different rooms or that they they decided to tune in at nine o'clock every every night to see how the story develops and yeah it was really wonderful it was really wonderful even though it was a really successful play and you look at the incredible cast and Stephen Frears and your own incredible script were you surprised by the reaction because it's officially the most watched drama of the year now I was, I was totally surprised and if 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 I I mean, if I'm honest, during production, I had one, f my main fear was that it was going to be um, too too light, I guess. Yeah. That, uh, that, that I'd just come off the back of that Brexit film that was very punchy and provocative. And I'd seen the amount of press coverage and comment, sort of commentary that, that circled that. And I kept thinking... This, this, specifically this ITV drama, which I, I think we all know what the perception is of sometimes, of, uh, unfairly in my view. Of and you made many jokes is. about that during during the show. And I was very happy to do so. And I was very grateful <laughs> that ITV uh, let me. I guess they wanted to be in on the joke. Um, that it might it might feel disposable and that people wouldn't care about this 20-year-old story that had pretty much left the national consciousness. And... And, the, you know, I, I really loved the comic elements, but I thought, oh, God, is it just going to be, is it too silly? Uh, and I'm so thrilled that um, the talent that is Stephen Frears and our wonderful cast completely just committed to that tone because I think it's what, uh, I think it's what people probably needed. And, and it may have been a bit nostalgic, but actually, and there is a huge danger to nostalgia. Mm. Um, but I think because it was nostalgia with a bit of commentary about nostalgia, that maybe it had um, it had a value. Um, so yes, I was totally surprised. I was thrilled that people uh, to to reignite people's interest in this bizarre story and have the question uh, going round about th this couple's innocence or yeah, guilt yeah. or um, and yeah, no, it was great. It was great. It was, it was lovely. And it's a show that asks so many questions of viewers. It sets up reasonable arguments and premises and then almost discredits them and then discredits that. And of course, the Ingrams case has now gone from being supposedly one of the most open and shut cases we've ever had in this country to being, well, I could probably call 10 different friends and they would all give different answers on whether they were guilty or not. You've obviously spent time with the Ingrams. What are they actually like? I'm really fond of them. They're, they're, um, they're, they're, I, 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 the, 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 the absolute joy in writing this, uh, as opposed to some of my other shows about politicians or people with power, is, um, is that everybody I met across the scale, from the, from the producers of the show to the, the people they accused of cheating, I really liked. They were yeah. just, um, they were really lovely. The producers were so passionate about the, the thing that they made. The Ingrams were so passionate about their their innocence or the the, 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 the the crime dealt out to them in all the ways that the media attention and the mockery and the humiliation was disproportionate and unfair mm. and I don't disagree with them. Um, the, with the, the third the third part of that conspiracy, alleged conspiracy, Tekwin Wittick and his family, this, yeah. this really endearing lecturer from college who had a cough, a diagnosed cough. Yes. Um, and then was put through the, this this huge trial 
Um, yeah. So, but as, as to what the Ingrams are like, I mean, I, I, I they're they're um, uh, they were very generous with their time, and uh, their their sense of injustice hasn't gone away over twenty years. So they speak very eloquently and passionately about that. They are they are that wonderful thing as well, which I think the actors really captured. They 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 the sort of examples of great English eccentricity. Uh, I mean, he's an army major. Yeah. He acts he acts like one. He acts like how you want an army major to act. Um, and she's she's this really funny, um, you know, woman who 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 liked quizzes maybe a bit yeah. too much. And 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 then of course you have the um, the thing that was so joyful. I, I found it in, in being able to write um, was this syndicate, this syndicate of um, of Wiltshire quiz obsessives who basically performed a very English version of, of Ocean's Eleven <laughs> yes. in, in, in trying to hack the, the, the world's most popular game show. Uh, so to, to bring those characters like that, to bring those to the screen and the joy, the fact that, you know, they, they exist and they're real is, is a real privilege. I mean, often when a drama bills itself as, you know, the untold story, it's, it, it's a story that most people know. But apart from the coughing, really, I, I don't think I appreciated any of the nuances of, of, of the story. I think that's right, and that, that was more of my great hope that people would go, "Why, why, why you know, you 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 close your, you close one eye and read Twitter the moment you announce uh, that you're doing a show about a certain thing, and you prepare yourself for the crisis. Is this what we've come to? Why would we rather what?" watch paint dry etc etc and um, but i always hope that the story was more interesting than people people thought um so so for example you know it's not just these these two people it's not just the major and in fact i think most people were probably surprised that he actually wasn't even the main character in episode one yeah. it, was, it was his brother-in-law and his wife who got who amazingly got on the show um before he did so I, I remember actually just thinking back to the night of the first broadcast that was my one fear that um uh, because of the way I structured it into three episodes, I could find I could find no no way at all to get the major into that chair in yeah. the first episode, and I was bracing myself for a wave of commentary that was along the lines of. In fact, I did smile, and I remember seeing one tweet uh, during the first ten minutes that basically said, "Oh, he's not even in the bloody chair yet." <laughs> And I was like, I knew that he wasn't even getting in the chair till tomorrow night. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to lose the entire audience by the first ad break. But then I forgot. I forgot the things that I'd written. I'd also I forgot that we get to meet this this glorious syndicate, and that we get to meet the family outside the major. Um, I think that I think I personally think, um, but I'm a massive dweeb for um, systems and processes and institutions. But I think the stuff around how they made the show is really interesting, and what yeah. you know, the fact that the, the producer had to put his own house on the line and and that it wasn't a guaranteed success and, and that kind of stuff is yeah hopefully interesting. I have to say I thought the third episode in particular was it was incredible partly because the recreation of the who wants to be a millionaire studio was so good I was trying to work out how the story sustains itself but then Helen McCrory turns up. <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit of a cheat isn't it to, to um to, to drop her in at the third episode she's yeah she's so extraordinary and um and you know how we we one of the source materials for the play and for the for the TV drama was a, was this book um, called Bad Show by a journalist uh, Bob Wolfenden and a, a chess grandmaster James Plaskett, and it came out about five years ago, and it, it was the first time that uh, anyone had sort of re-examined this this allegedly cut and dry black and white case, and just began bringing all of the defence and all of the many many contradictions and and and. Um, uh, holes in this 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 theory of their of their guilt, um, 
and I just found that so exciting to delve into and to be to be able to store to store all that stuff up deliberately uh, in your arsenal and wait to the third episode to then begin unleashing point after point. Yeah. All of the disparities that you deliberately try to lead the audience into believing in the first two episodes and then pulling the rug under in the third. Uh, it was really fun. I mean, Helen uh, McCrory, I like she, she, she could bend the will of the gods. I was I, I've never been so excited by a court scene. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you. I mean, we did get a lot of very fair criticism <laughs> from actual lawyers about the, um, the very theatrical nature of our courts and you know barristers pacing around and that kind of thing but i mean i think to our to our to our hopefully our, our credit we um in the in the ways that you uh, sort of said about the itv references we sort of tried to make it quite knowingly knowingly <laughs> artificial uh, and a court drama about a courtroom drama uh, where we could take some of those liberties it's um yeah she was a wise moment what, what what's strange actually about um ted the difference between producing television and watching television is often the disparity about how much screen time an actor gets and how much time they're actually on set yeah so Helen McCrory was never sort of never left the screen really in episode three. So for a third of the television drama, but she probably only came on set for two days mm. um, and just did all of that stuff in a couple of takes. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and 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 you just go that thank, thanks that's great we've got it you can go home and <laughs> uh, and yeah she's she's such a pro. I mean those court scenes reminded me a little bit of Line Line of Duty and its interrogation scene that gladiatorial nature the way the game flips on its head in a moment I mean that 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 must have been a joy to write those scenes. Yeah I, my I started to think about it as a you know the classic uh, Aaron Sorkin film A Few Good Men yeah uh, where Jack Nick cousin walks in and says you can't handle the truth you uh, you know you're building to that moment except you're doing it with um where the piece of evidence that gets dropped at the end is is the fact that the lecturer actually had a cough um <laughs> you know it's not hollywood stuff but it's um um yeah we wanted to create those moments of real drama and we i suppose structurally i lined up all of the evidence for their defense as i saw it um and I thought the most compelling argument, the one to, to want the one to keep to the very end, is a moment where, if you remember the drama, where Helen McCrory is sort of wrapping up her questioning of the television producer, and she lands the point at the very end, which is basically, how do you explain um, the questions he got right, yeah. where there was no coughing at all, and the the defence was that uh, well. He, he didn't need any coughs on those answers because he, he knew those answers. And the very obvious point to come back to on that is, well, how did this guy know that he knew those answers and yeah. so he didn't need to cough? They'd never met. They didn't know one another. How would he know? Oh, I don't need to cough now because this person I've never met already knows the answer to this question. It's You go, oh, so go, oh yeah, that's really weird. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, so you, you try and, you, you, as, exactly as you, as you put, you try and find the drama by building the most convincing points in this kind of escalating, escalating sense of a bit of development. And after the show aired, there was a lot of calls for ITV to air the original uh, episode after Quiz had aired. Do you think they ever will, or is Quiz the closest we'll ever come to seeing that that in full? Well, that, I mean, it does exist. It's on YouTube, and anyone can watch it. But of course, as we as, as we as we reminded people in the television drama, there is no un unedited version of it and the, the 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 version of that of the major's performance that you'll see on youtube has those coughs but those coughs are amplified yeah and um the, the prosecution made 
a not unreasonable case for why they had to do that. They wanted to replicate what it's like to listen to something um, in a way, and, and therefore they had tried to replicate what the major was hearing. But yes, you watch that and you go, oh my God, it's so obvious. And, and that's problematic because it's not obvious. And finally, James, what else have you been watching during lockdown? Well, you know, my own stuff on a loop again <laughs> and again. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I have been, um, like everybody else probably, I absolutely adored normal people. And I adored yeah. actually how it was structured, the rhythm of that, the bite-sized nature of those half-an-hour episodes um, were just deliciously wonderful. And I tried to spread them out, them out as much as possible. I did the same, actually. I spread them out as well. And I have to say, half-an-hour is a really, really good format at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's um, you, you, It just meant every every... Every episode had its own unique identity. Every episode was about a thing, yeah. a character's particular dilemma or something that a character found uniquely difficult. It was great. And that, again, that is by a playwright, Alice Birch. She adapted uh, the majority of that series. I, I returned to the Ozarks on Netflix. I, I, um, I left it a bit in the second series. I thought the second series trod a bit of water. Um, but I thought the series, third series um, was bleakly wonderful and uh, an amazing performance by Janet Mateer, one of our great British actresses. I have to say that's that's not one I, I've watched at all. I've always oh, really? always missed Ozark. Why should we watch it? I'm weary, I'm weary of leading you towards it because it's incredibly violent and incredibly <laughs> yeah. bleak. It does not make you feel good about the world or about people. But it's just so well produced and it's so shocking. You just don't know from 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 in a, in a, game, in a Game of Thrones way. You don't know from scene to scene which characters you're going to lose. Yeah, uh, and it's it's very compelling. And are you getting stuck into box sets or are, are you just trying to do smaller series? Yeah, no, really. I I am I'm happy to, for the gods of for the gods of linear television or the algorithm to deliver things to me, and I will <laughs> yeah. I will consume it. I'm not seek, actively seeking things out. I have um. I've been returning to episodes of The West Wing a bit, oh, uh, but again, yeah. only 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 as and when uh, I think Sky Atlantic deems deems it possible for me to do so. I'm not I'm not putting on a DVD, but they've been going through it so episode by episode again, and we just got to the end of the series. Um, I think this week uh, that's been glorious. That's been great. Have you listened to the West Wing podcast? No, I haven't actually. People talk about that the, I, from the guy who destroyed the West Wing, as he as he claims the um, what's the actual. <laughs> But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I should do that. It's really good. I sort of want to start watching the West Wing all over again just to listen to that as almost some kind of post-show book club. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's you know, it's not perfect. It has that slight uh, American sentimentality towards their own glorious democracy <laughs> um, with all of its many flaws. But I think some, I think some, there's one, there's one. Um, this is the stuff I, I sort of love to write and try to replicate in our own British equivalents. Uh, it's all of the it's all of the strange anachronisms and bizarre bizarre elements to our unwritten constitution that I sometimes think are really really exciting. And there's an amazing episode of The West Wing. I think it's the end of series four, where. They, they, they. So obviously, clearly, what the writing team did was they looked at all the vulnerabilities of this system and said, "How can we, how can we send a, a, an Exocet missile into it?" So they created a situation where the vice president had resigned, yeah. and then the president, Jed Bartlett, had to had to relinquish control because his daughter had been kidnapped. Mm. 
and then so so you go down and down the hierarchy of American power. You go, well, who's next? And it's the Speaker of the House. And of course, what what the American system allows for is the Speaker of the House can be from the different party. So you have this character, John Goodman, who's a Republican, coming into the White House to be the become the temporary president in a democratic uh, in a democratic party. Uh, and it's absolutely glorious, absolutely brilliant to construct that that to to, to look what is absurd about our system and let's let's run with it. Um, but of course, then it was a, the end of that story was very moving in the way that it demonstrated once the president could return, that the, that speaker relinquished that power very amiably and handed it over and went back to his job. And I, I just love that stuff. I love it. I think John Goodman almost immediately tries to declare war, I think. Yeah, there's a bit where he, loses, <laughs> he, he sort of, yeah, he doesn't behave brilliantly. Um, and he brings his own advisors in and obviously they, they do, they enact different ideological policy. But then as soon as the president comes back, he signs a paper and, and says good luck and returns to his job. Oh, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to restart the West Wing again. James, thank you so much. That was brilliant. You're so welcome. Thanks. Good to talk. Do you know what? If James had mentioned the West Wing at the start, that's all we would have talked about. And I can't believe it has taken seven episodes to talk about CITV game show Finders Keepers. Seriously, if you were ever wronged on that show, please, please get in touch because I really want Michael Sheen to play Neil Buchanan in that. Oh, could you imagine it? Thank you so much to James for doing that. He was incredibly busy last week and he managed to find some time to fit that in. I will add some links in the bio on ways you can help support theatre and the arts, which, as James says, were the first to close and will be the last to reopen. <laughs> I should also point out that this was recorded just a few hours before the Dominic Cummings road trip was announced so our little laugh about him was just because well that was episode seven of the quarantine break podcast please continue to subscribe for new episodes first and please tell your friends i'll be back very very soon but in the meantime please stay indoors